Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Before we get into this episode, a quick reminder, no one has ever been arrested for a crime related to the disappearance of Michelle Juleson. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And also, much of this story is based on police reports in Michelle Juleson's cold case file. Let's remember that accusations made towards people in Shelley's life that were passed along to police in 1994 and which are repeated in this podcast today are not necessarily accurate and true. Again, innocent until proven guilty. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Walner, and this is Season 7, Call Me Shelley, The Mysterious Disappearance of Michelle Juleson. How would you get abducted from 140 American to 300 block East Broadway without somebody seeing it on a Tuesday afternoon? I think something happened to her. I think somebody took her. You need to call the police, and you need to give yourself a protection order. Burnt Creek Club. Bartender at the Burnt Creek Club. Told her any time after 2 o'clock she could stop by and pick him up, and she never did show. And I was specifically looking for that car, Shelly's car. Was one of the group allegedly harassing Shelly at the bar. But there was two, two railroad workers, and I thought they talked to one. The evidence sheets should have still, and there should have been copies of it, all attached to the report. Because I don't think... They did any kind of a job at all on trying to find Shelly. It's Friday afternoon, August 5th, 1994. For the regular folks, all those nine-to-fivers working for the weekend, it's going to be a great night of leisure, perfect for tennis or golf or maybe a cold beer by the river. For others around town, the workday is just getting started. You've heard the slogan, the sign that sells, but do you know what it means? It means that you... Just look at them now with their dead, tired eyes, scattered out in every direction in duplexes, family homes, and trailer parks. Bartenders and blackjack dealers, waitresses and hotel staff, nurses and police officers, they all revive themselves slowly and sit carefully upright again. Coffee mug in hand, maybe a smoldering cigarette dangling between pinched lips. You know the drill. Run your fingers through your hair, stand in hot shower, rinse, repeat. Here we go again, another unsung night of serving. Serving drinks, serving food, serving papers, serving the public. One police officer just coming on duty that late afternoon is Officer Cliff Emmert. Cliff Emmert has been dealt a different kind of assignment today, and it's about to take him all over town. His superiors have instructed him to visit the gaming locations in town bars, motels, anywhere Shelley Juleson's employer operates. Places where Shelley and her FALF friends work and drink and play. Places she's been, places she might be found. The assignment itself is straightforward and above ground. 
On paper, it's called investigating. But a good investigator intuitively hears the underlying goal, the secret mission, so to speak. And Emmert's mission is a type of quest, a quest to catch a feeling, a sense of Shelley's world. Officer Emmert's unspoken marching orders sound more like this. Swoop in there under the neon and ask questions. Talk to Shelley's friends, enemies, co-workers. Snoop around in the slick shadows and talk to the little jack corners and the blackjack corners. Use your eyes and ears and intuition to paint a portrait of Shelley's world. Then bring those breadcrumbs back to base. His first destination is a place called Stage Stop. There he speaks to a blackjack dealer named Tara Lean. The following is from Emmert's report, narrated by a colleague of mine. She stated that she's a pretty good friend of Shelley's. She knew Shelley was under a lot of pressure and wasn't getting along with the child's father. She stated there was also a phone bill that someone ran up for two to $3,000. Kevin had also been talking about taking the child away from her, so Shelley was pretty depressed. Shelley has had a rough life and has had a lot of ups and downs, so being depressed isn't anything unusual. She stated the last time she talked to her was on Saturday night, and Shelley didn't mention anything out of the ordinary. She's also heard from Tony, who is Shelley's old boyfriend who works at the Burnt Creek Club. Apparently, Shelley told Tony that she had a fight with Kevin on Sunday and didn't want to talk to Tony about it on the phone. It was pretty bad because she just started crying again when she was telling Tony about it. She stated she knows Kevin has been physical with Shelley before, and she thinks that had something to do with the fact that they never got married. At 6 p.m., Emmert punches the accelerator towards the Burnt Creek Club. There, he collects another breadcrumb. He talks to a Bonnie Munch and learns that both Bonnie and Shelley had worked at the Burnt Creek Club on Monday night. Add that to Shelley's timeline, worked at Burnt Creek on Monday. And Bonnie tells Emmert that both she and Shelley use the same babysitter, a woman named Tammy. Bonnie tells Emmert that on Monday night, Shelley didn't seem her usual self. She stated they both got off work on Monday. She met Shelley at the babysitter's. When Shelley picked up her child, Shelley seemed real distracted and bothered by something. She stated she thought about following her home and talking to her, but didn't. She stated she knew that she had been getting hang-up phone calls, and Shelley thought it could have been Tony or one of the barmaids at the Burnt Creek Club who Tony had been involved with. Shelley's car had been keyed a couple of times, so Bonnie knows there's been some strange things happening. Officer Emmert then burns out of Burnt Creek, but he's not done by any means. His cruiser back in drive, he heads to a motor inn called Seven Seas. There he speaks with another blackjack dealer, another friend of Shelley's. Kim Borner regurgitates the same Tony story, and in case you've missed it, Tony's story goes like this. 
Shelley Juleson told Tony on the phone that Kevin Woodworth had done something to her Sunday night, but she wouldn't say what it was, not over the phone. Not that night, and apparently not even during another call, the two-hour-long phone call Tony had with Shelley on Tuesday morning, a call that ended about 30 minutes before Shelley dropped off her son, Jaden, and then disappeared. This is from Emmert's report after speaking with Shelley's friend, Kim. She has known Shelly for 18 years, and Shelly has been calling her every morning, and if she doesn't reach out to her in the morning, then she calls her at 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon before Kim goes to work. She stated she got a call on Tuesday around 3.30, and it was a hang-up call, and this really bothers her. She thinks it may have been Shelly. The last time she talked to Shelly was on Friday. She stated she also talked to Tony, and Tony told her that something happened Sunday night with Kevin. She knew that Shelly had taken her child to Kevin's on Sunday for Kevin to babysit, and Kevin always expects her to sleep with her for payment for babysitting. She stated she knows Shelly has had trouble with that, but says she can handle it. She also stated she knows Kevin used to physically abuse Shelly. I asked her if any of this happened recently. She said she didn't think Shelly would even tell her if that happened recently, because Shelly knows that Kim would turn him into the police. Shelly has been getting hang-up calls. She stated she also knows that someone has followed Shelly home a couple of times. She feels that Tony would know a lot of what is going on. Even though they broke up, whenever Shelly has problems or needs help, she goes to Tony. Tony is Shelly's confidant. She stated it is sort of a strange relationship. She feels that Shelly was afraid of Kevin, and Kevin was always threatening to take away a child. While Officer Emmert is talking to Kim at the Seven Seas, Detective Walls and Officer Shibley are back at Shelley's trailer canvassing the area. Detective Walls talks to a neighbor named Galen. He doesn't really know his neighbor. No, he's not seen a lot of male company over there. In fact, not a lot of people or noise at all. I've seen a child playing over there on occasion, Galen says. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. I'd like to reiterate that Kevin Woodworth has been provided an opportunity to speak with us, but has respectfully declined. Our door remains open, of course, and he has my contact information, should he ever like to comment or tell his side of things. It's 7.25 p.m., and Emmert drives to Midway Bowling Lanes and speaks with another blackjack dealer. I talked to James Becker at Midway Lanes. I asked him about Shelley and if he had any ideas about where she may be. He stated he knows that she had a lot of trouble with Tony out at the Burnt Creek Club, and Shelley had mentioned a couple of months ago about Tony threatening her with a gun. I asked him if Tony pointed the gun at her or what. 
He stated he doesn't think there was an actual gun and thought Tony just mentioned about shooting her and shooting himself. Mr. Becker stated he thinks Shelley was really in love with Tony, and Tony was sleeping around and this bothered her a lot. He stated Shelley would do anything for Tony. Meanwhile, Shelley Jolson's father, Wes Jolson, has been doing some investigating of his own. He drives all around Bismarck and Mandan, surveying hospitals and parking lots, looking for his daughter and her Ford Thunderbird. He strikes out big time, but drops by Bismarck PD anyway to let Walls know where he searched. The two men talk about other things, too, from Walls' report. Wesley said that, in his opinion, Kevin was jealous and protective of Michelle. He said that he had heard this from talking with Michelle at different times. Wesley told me Kevin always seemed to be holding sex over Michelle's head. He said that he was always threatening to take Jaden away from her also. Officer Cliff Emmert just keeps at it, collecting breadcrumbs and asking questions. He takes a drive to speak with Shelley's friend Larry. Detective Walls had spoken with him on the phone earlier in the day. Larry is not a blackjack dealer, so he's not been dealt the same story that Tony's been passing around. Larry has his own independent thoughts, not on Kevin, but on Tony. He stated he knows she was having a lot of trouble with a guy named Tony, who was a bartender at the Burnt Creek Club. He would show up at her residence late at night and harass her. When she was working at the Burnt Creek Club, Tony's friends would call her a slut and a whore and things like that. He stated Shelley had asked her boss to get her out of the Burnt Creek Club for quite a while, and she was finally taken out of there for the most part. He said he thought it would get better after that, but Tony still showed up at her home late at night, drunk, and would ask her to take him back and things like that. Larry stated that Tony had apparently acted quite strange some of these times. He stated Shelley also mentioned her car was keyed several times. Larry felt this also pointed towards Tony doing this. Around 10 p.m., with his shift coming to an end, Officer Cliff Emmert heads back to the police department. He navigates Bismarck's summer streets, taking it all in. Typical for a Friday night, as the evening has purred along, the city's collective alcohol content has continued to rise, and much like a wave building momentum in the ocean, eventually it will crest, then break, dousing the city in micro-moments of chaos, fragments of drunk trouble, all documented for future generations in police reports and newspaper blurbs. While Emmert has attempted to sketch a picture of Shelley's life, a bit of finger-pointing is starting to take shape. This in regards to two men, ex-boyfriend Kevin and her most recent on-again, off-again boyfriend, Tony. Shelley's story is taking shape, but regarding one subplot, the harassment, it's as if her associates and friends are from two separate tribes, and a lot gets lost in translation. What they agree on is this. Shelley was feeling harassed. She was getting hang-up phone calls day and night. Her car had been vandalized. Scratches on the paint, a hole in her radiator. And more than once, Shelley had felt that someone was following her home from Burnt Creek Club. Something had been lurking in Shelley's shadows. That much was palpable. Less palpable was what it was all about, exactly. 
the FALF gaming crowd were more or less singing in unison. They sing a song written and conducted by Tony the bartender, a song called Kevin Did Something to Shelley Sunday Night. Others, those with some distance from bar stools and bingo halls, they knew the words to a different tune, a song called The Burnt Creek Club, about its patrons harassing Shelley, about a bartender named Tony and his new barmaid girlfriend. Kevin and Tony, Tony and Kevin, the investigation into whatever happened to Michelle Juleson was now like a disappointed bloodhound staring at the river where the scent just evaporated. Sure, Detective Walls and Cliff Emmert and others had collected some breadcrumbs, but the trail didn't really lead anywhere. Mostly, it just told them where she'd been. On Saturday, she wrote a check at the Burnt Creek Club. On Sunday, who knows what she did other than making some phone calls in the early hours of Monday. Later Monday, she wrote a check to rent to own and then worked at the Burnt Creek Club that evening. After that, she picked up Jaden at the babysitter's where her friend Bonnie says Shelley seemed different, very distracted. On Tuesday, she talks on the phone with her friend Holly, and she also talks to Tony for about two hours until about noon. And still, she won't tell Tony what supposedly happened between her and Kevin. About 30 minutes after speaking with Tony, she drops off Jaden. Then, poof, gone, vanished. And speaking of dropping off Jaden at his grandparents, if the investigation was a bloodhound at a dead-end riverbank, then the river was the home of Richard Woodworth. That's where the breadcrumbs ended, at least until Bismarck PD could find new ones. For example, if they could just find her car, the Ford Thunderbird with its damaged radiator. Earlier that day, Officer Troy Shaner and a few BCI agents had searched for the car by air. They flew all around Bismarck, down south, up north, in fact, all the way to the town of Center and back, where Shelley grew up, where her parents still live. No car, no Shelley, no luck. If the investigators were feeling frustrated that Friday night, they were probably very pleased when suddenly a brand new breadcrumb fell right into their lap. Before Walls calls it a night, his phone rings. On the other end of the line is a woman named Chris, and while Chris doesn't know where Shelley is now, or even where she'd been on Monday or Tuesday, she can shed light on Shelley's whereabouts on Sunday. After this phone conversation, Detective Walls will have to add to his running list of characters in the Shelley Juleson saga, because, as it turns out, the soundtrack of Shelley's life was not just songs about Kevin and Tony. The following is the report Walls submitted after this conversation. Listen carefully. Remember, This information is about what Shelley was doing late Sunday night, early Monday morning, 36 hours before she vanished. Also, for reference, Heartview is an alcohol and drug treatment program. I received a call from Chris Aziz, who was a bartender at the Elbow Room. She said that Michelle met two males in the Elbow Room last Sunday night. She said Michelle and the other gamer employee, Robin, had gotten off work early. She said that the two males were the only other people in the bar at the time. They were both very friendly and said they were from out of town. They told her that they worked for a railroad and were staying at a local hotel. One of them mentioned something about being from Grand Forks. One of them had said that he had been at Hartview, but had signed himself out and was taking outpatient treatment. One of them commented to the other one that he was going to be laid over in Bismarck for a couple of days. 
Chris said that Michelle had mentioned something about her car not running right, and one of the males said he was a mechanic and there was talk that he would take a look at her car. Michelle was drinking Colorado Bulldogs. She said that Michelle bought one and the males bought her two of them, so she had at least three of them that night. Chris said she locked up the bar at approximately 12.57 and Michelle was standing out back talking to the two subjects at the time. She said she did not know if they left together after that or not. She said she did not notice if the two males had any form of transportation. I asked her if she could describe them and all I could really get is that they were both white males. She said she would remember them if she saw them again. Suddenly, the trail of breadcrumbs had new life. No longer a bloodhound just staring at a river crossing, the investigation was now on the move again, tracking a new trail. It's 9 a.m. Saturday, August 6th. Detective Walls is back at work. First things first, he calls the after-hours number for Kevin Woodworth's employer, Miller Insulation. He wants to know who Kevin's foreman is. He gets the name Jack Earhart, tries calling Earhart, but no answer. Next up, Walls calls an investigator for the Burlington Northern Railroad. He wants to figure out who those two railroad workers were who were drinking with Shelley on Sunday night at the Elbow Room. Then, Walls and Shibley ditch their desk phones and put shoe leather on pavement. They go downtown, near the Elbow Room Bar. According to the tip last night, those two railroad workers told Shelley they were staying at a hotel. One hotel within walking distance of the Elbow Room is the Fleck House. Assistant Manager Carol Thomas says, If you're looking for railroad workers, the Comfort Inn Hotel up in North Bismarck has a contract with the railroad. Most railroad workers stay at the Comfort Inn, she says, although sometimes we get some of the overflow from the Comfort Inn. She checked the registration book for last Sunday but could not locate any railroad employees registered for Sunday, July 31st. She said that the register did not always indicate which guests were railroad employees, so she could not say for sure whether it was possible the two subjects we were looking for were registered there. She said she did not know all of the railroad employees that were staying there. She told us that most of the railroad employees did not have any transportation at the hotels. Before leaving the Fleck House, Walls gets the names of two front desk clerks who were on staff Sunday evening and Sunday night. Maybe they saw something. Maybe they know something. It's 11 a.m. Saturday, and Wes Juleson, Shelley's dad, calls the PD to check in. The Juleson's have not heard from Shelley yet, he says. At 11.40, the Burlington Northern investigator returns Wall's phone call. Yes, he says, I think we do have one employee who was at treatment at Hartview. I'll do some checking. He will also check with the Bismarck Hotels and see which employees might have been in town this week. He'll be back in touch on Monday. Saturday turns to Sunday morning, and Shelley's father calls the PD again. This time, he isn't just asking if they've heard anything. This time, he's passing on information that he has gathered himself. And it is interesting information, to say the least. Wesley Juleson tells Detective Walls that Shelley had told people that one of the people harassing her at the Burnt Creek Club was a Bismarck police officer. His name is Don Schaefer, from Walls' report. I asked if she mentioned if Don Schaefer had been drinking at the time he harassed her. 
and he said that she said that he had been. He said that he was calling her names and giving her a rough time. He said that she told him that this happened on more than one occasion. I'd like to point out that Don Schaefer is deceased, and so he is not able to respond to allegations raised in police interviews. We will discuss these allegations in future episodes. Ten AM Sunday and Walls has a message to call Kevin Woodworth. Kevin had called to ask if they had heard anything yet, if there was any news. All weekends must eventually wind down, and this one is no different. The nine to fivers put away the golf clubs, the tennis rackets and fishing poles, and prepare for the new week. And investigators at the PD are getting ready for Monday, too. In fact, they have some big plans for the next day. On Monday, they want to interview Kevin Woodworth. They want to bring him into the PD, sit him down in an interview room, get in his face a bit, and put on some pressure, see what this guy's all about. They also want to sit down and interview Tony Holm. Interestingly, though, there is one person they apparently have no plan on interviewing or talking to at all. The Bismarck police officer named Don Schaefer who was reportedly harassing Shelley at the Burnt Creek Club. They won't talk to Schaefer tomorrow. In fact, they won't talk to him on Tuesday or ever. Or if they ever do talk to him, they won't write it down in Shelley's police file. Or there is one other possibility. If they did speak with police officer Don Schaefer about harassing Shelley, and they did write it down in Shelley's report, perhaps that report is one of the 104 pages missing from Shelley's police file all removed in 1994 at the request of Bismarck PD's head of investigations, Lieutenant Myron Hindley. We will talk more about the missing 104 pages in a future episode, but for now let's stay on pace and look at what will happen on Monday, August 8th, when Kevin Woodworth is interviewed and when another big breadcrumb is found, Shelley's automobile. It's Monday, August 8th, 1994, a brand new week in the USA. In the national news, a Senate filibuster is lurking to thwart President Bill Clinton's attempts to help all Americans get health care. Senator Phil Graham of Texas doesn't like the sound of that. And locally in North Dakota, residents of Bismarck wake to a chilling surprise, literally chilling, that is. The temperature has dropped to just 38 degrees, setting a new record low for the date. The National Weather Service had predicted a low of 52. Police officer Cliff Emmert begins this crisp morning by heading to a business in town, Kevin's employer, Miller Insulation. There he talks to Kevin's supervisor, Jack Earhart. Jack Earhart tells him that Kevin's work schedule runs from 7 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. He tells Emmert that on Monday and Tuesday, Kevin was working at a doctor's office near Washington and Century. Kevin didn't have a supervisor at the site. He could have possibly left without anyone knowing. Emmert also learns that Kevin has taken Thursday and Friday off work. He told a supervisor he'd been up all night looking for Shelley. He was really worried about her and what would become of their child if she didn't come back. While Emmert is at Miller Insulation, back at the station, Detective Walls spends a lot of time on the phone. Hey, Credit Bureau, what can you guys tell me about Shelley's credit? The answer, get a subpoena and we'll tell all. Fine, says Walls, and he gets to it. But when Walls serves his subpoena, it's a dead end. Shelley has no credit cards. 
If Shelley Juleson is on the run, well, she's running with cash and checks. Walls checks his voicemail. He's got two. Russ Bryant, investigator for Burlington Northern, says he's working on some names of railroad workers to follow up on. He'll get them to Walls ASAP. The other voicemail is from Richard Woodworth, Kevin's father. He says cops should send a teletype to cops in Sturgis, South Dakota, where the motorcycle rally is going on. Bikers are known for stealing women, he says. Then Walls phones Mike Quinn at BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, and asks if they can run a couple of polygraphs, lie detector tests. Sure, says Quinn, and they whip up a preliminary plan to run the polygraph on Kevin first and on Burnt Creek Tony second. But first, they need to get Kevin and Tony to agree to a polygraph in the first place, so Walls and Umbert head out to talk to them both. They try catching Tony at his house, but nobody's home, so they zip instead to Kevin's job site. Hi, Kevin. We'd like you to come down to the station for questioning. Kevin agrees. He'll be there at 3 p.m. Later at Burnt Creek Club... Tony agrees to come into the station, too. I'll be in at 9 a.m. tomorrow, he says. At 3 o'clock, Kevin Woodworth comes to the station. One note about this interview, something that's confusing, still confusing to me, actually. We heard earlier that when Shelley's mother first asked Kevin when he last saw Shelley, he said Friday, but then he agreed he was wrong. He'd seen her on Sunday because... He was babysitting Jaden, and there must have been some kind of handoff of the child. In this interview, Kevin will once again say he last saw her Friday, but then goes on to say Shelley dropped Jaden off at his house on Saturday and picked him up on Sunday. So didn't he sort of see her then? I don't know what to make of Kevin's thinking here. Maybe he didn't really speak with Shelley when she was dropping off and picking up Jaden, or maybe Kevin wasn't even home. I believe he lived with his brother at the time. I don't know the answer, but I want you to know that I acknowledge that this aspect of the interview is quite confusing, and I wish Walls and Emmert had asked Kevin to clarify. Sergeant Walls and myself interviewed Kevin Woodworth. I talked to him about when he last saw Shelley. He stated he last saw her on Friday. He said she had come over on Thursday night and she was broke. Her refrigerator was broken down and she didn't have any food. He told her to go shopping and he would be over on Friday to give her $50 to cover the food. He stated on Friday he was over at her house around noon and he gave her $50. He talked about supporting Shelly and whenever she needed money, she could come to him. I asked him about child support. He stated he does pay $120 a month in child support, which is taken out of his paycheck. I talked to Kevin about the weekend. I asked him if he took care of his son Jaden over the weekend. He stated Shelley had brought Jaden over to his house on Saturday at 2 p.m., and then she picked him up on Sunday around 2.30 in the afternoon. He stated she was late for work at the elbow room, which was apparently normal. He stated she was supposed to be at work at 2.30 p.m., but she was just picking up Jaden at that time. He stated other than that, he tried to get a hold of her on Monday evening to talk to her about student loans of hers that she had gotten a notice on, but she must have been at work. I asked him where he was on Tuesday during the day. He stated he was at work at the New Med Center Clinic at Washington and Century until about 2 o'clock. The cleaning people came and kicked the construction crews out, and he went back to his office at another construction site and talked to his foreman, Jack Earhart. 
He stated he was told to load up a bunch of material for the fire hall, and he did that from 2 to 3 p.m. or so, and then he ended up working at the new fire station until 5.30. I asked him when he first found out that Jaden was dropped off at his parents' house. He stated that occurred on Wednesday evening at 5.45. His mother called and wanted to know if he had seen Shelley because Jaden had been dropped off and not been picked up. He stated it wasn't unusual for her to be late in picking up Jaden. He thought she was out partying or something, but she usually does call when she gets too late. He stated he went over and talked to his parents and then went to the gaming sites looking for her. He stated they decided to call the police. It was his dad's idea to call the police. I asked Kevin about any fights he has had with Shelley. He related one fight that he had told Sergeant Walls about on his first interview about where the police were called and Shelley had struck him several times. He denied ever striking Michelle. I talked to him about a black eye Michelle had a couple of months ago, and he denied having any knowledge of that or being responsible for it. I talked to him about being in a fight with Shelley on Sunday, and he denied having any argument with her. I asked him how he felt about being questioned, and he stated it was, quote, pissing him off, but he wanted to cooperate and do anything he could to get Shelley back. I asked him if he ever thought he would be better off without Shelley being around. He stated quite the opposite. It would make it hard on him. She takes care of Jaden all week long, and he just has his son on weekends usually. He stated he really loves Shelley and is concerned about her, and he would do nothing to harm her. He thinks she may have been abducted by some stranger, and he's heard from Holly Ness that she was being stalked. He stated he heard Shelley was being followed home sometimes, and she was getting strange phone calls. I asked him why some of the people we had talked to would say that he may have reason to harm her. He stated he has no idea of why people would say that. He would never think of doing something like that to Shelley. I talked to him about taking a polygraph. He stated he would be willing to take a polygraph, and we set up an appointment for the polygraph at noon on Tuesday. Not long after they conclude the interview with Kevin, there is big news in the case. Shelley's car has been located. It was discovered in North Bismarck, in the parking lot of the Comfort Inn, the hotel with a contract with the railroad. Detective Julie Thompson grabs a camera and heads up north. The car was parked just south of the entrance into the lounge at the Comfort Inn. It appeared to have been there for a while, as there was dirt on the windshield from dew or recent rains. I took a picture of the vehicle as follows with a Canon AE-1 camera and Kodak film. License plate, right rear of vehicle, right front of vehicle, entrance to the lounge from the front right of the vehicle, left front of vehicle, including damage to the driver's door, left rear of vehicle. I also made a sketch of the area where the car was found. This is attached and is not to scale. I wrote down the license plates of the vehicle in the vicinity of the victim's car, and they are attached. By looking in the vehicle, it did not appear to have anything disturbed. There was no sign of a struggle inside the vehicle. I called Dakota Towing and had them come to the Comfort Inn and tow the vehicle to the station. The vehicle was brought to the station where Sergeant Walls called Guardian Locksmith to come to the station and open the trunk and door to the vehicle. Before Guardian opened the vehicle, we dusted the door handles and keyholes for fingerprints. None were found. 
upon gaining entry to the trunk, an empty cooler and a pair of kids' jeans were found in the trunk. After gaining entry to the interior of the vehicle, Sergeant Walls did a cursory search of items inside to try to determine the last state that the victim may have been inside the vehicle. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, written, researched, and recorded by me, James Walner. Special thanks to my colleagues at Forum Communications for lending us their voices. That's Jim Manny, Trisha Tarinskas, Chris Kurzman, and Jeremy Fugelberg. Music by Wowza in Kalamazoo. You can check them out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on bandcamp.com. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. Once again, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.